0: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison
1: walls,
2: a message is called a kite whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the
0: prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison related news.
1: Truthout reported that the EPA's Environmental Justice Screening and Mapping Tool, or EJScreen, which the public can use to evaluate possible exposure to environmental pollutants, has added a prison layer. The new layer permits the public to overlay locations of the nation's 6,000-plus prisons, jails, and detention centers, with information about such environmental dangers as Superfund and other hazardous waste sites. The Human Rights Defense Center has been promoting this change as part of its campaign for the EPA to consider prisoners in terms of environmental justice. As Truth Out put it, quote, for the prison ecology movement, which addresses issues at the intersection of mass incarceration and environmental degradation, the new layer could be a game changer, unquote. A recent investigation by Earth Island Journal and Truth Out ...uncovered the fact that mass incarceration affects the health of prisoners, communities adjacent to prisons, and also the health of local ecosystems.
0: Now we take a moment to return to the story of Kara Wilde, who we covered in KiteLine episode 56. Kara's trial began on September 19th in Paris, France. She was tried along with eight other people, seven of whom are from France and one of whom is from Switzerland... They are all accused of participating in a militant counter-protest against the police union's protest against widespread anti-police sentiments, wherein a police car was set on fire. Karen Krem, another defendant, remained silent throughout the whole trial. The prosecutor recommended Kara receive three years in prison with one sentence suspended and three years banishment from France. Given she has already spent 18 months in jail awaiting trial, it is likely that she'll be released no later than April 2018. For Krem, the prosecutor suggested four years in prison with a three-year ban of demonstrations in Paris. For the missing person who is accused of throwing the flare that set the cop car ablaze, the prosecutor recommended eight years in prison. We're told by friends who attended the trial that Kara feels positively about how it went. Several hundred supporters showed up for the trial and prevented the media from photographing friends and family members with umbrellas, while others covered the inside of the courthouse with supportive graffiti and stickers. During the trial, 50 police cars were set on fire in Grenoble in solidarity with the defendants. All nine of them will be sentenced in the following weeks. Kara will be sentenced on October 11th. You can hear our episode about Kara on our website or get updates on her case at FreeKaraWild.org.
1: The Miami New Times reported that Florida prisoners are being forced to clean up after Hurricane Irma and are receiving no pay for their labor. Some of those work crews, numbering almost 200, have been picking up tree limbs and other hurricane debris on state roads. Paul Wright, director of the Human Rights Defense Center in Lake Worth, Florida, observed, quote, It's not that much different from a slave plantation. The only difference is now the slave owners wear uniforms and their employer is the state." The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except as punishment for anyone convicted of a crime. Florida is taking advantage of that amendment. The state benefits. The Florida Department of Corrections says on its website that state prisoners work an estimated 6.5 million hours on community projects with a savings of $59 million for taxpayers every year.
0: The phenomenon of mass incarceration has made the United States the world leader in carceral punishment. With only 4% of the world's population, the United States accounts for 20% of the world's incarcerated persons. In fact, the U.S. is a pioneer of mass incarceration and the attendant police militarization and prison industry that are its foundations. Programs like Three Strikes, Mandatory Minimums, and Truth in Sentencing are quintessentially American innovations. Now, the U.S. is beginning to export this model abroad. Earlier this year, at the Fight Toxic Prisons Conference in Texas, Nassim Chatha of the Alliance for Global Justice gave a talk on the idea of prison imperialism and how the United States is promoting a worldwide expansion of the prison industrial complex. Thank you guys so much for
3: coming out to listen to this. I am with the Alliance for Global Justice, which is Tucson-based Latin America solidarity organization. And we act in solidarity mainly with human rights and labor groups. We're opposed to U.S. empire and imperial military practices. And we're really strongly in support of the goals of the Fight Toxic Prisons Movement. So it's an honor to be here talking to you. So today I'm going to talk to you about something that I was one of my main focuses at AFGJ for over five years. First when I was an intern, and then during most of that five years I wasn't working for them, but I was researching it a little bit and now I'm uh, working at afgj's staff. So I've begun to investigate what we call prison imperialism. This is an AFGJ coinage, and it refers to a set of US programs that build up prison systems internationally. So the countries that I've studied most closely are Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, and Colombia. But US prison programs of different types are now in at least 34 countries in Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. There are even prison assistance and training programs in some Asian and Eastern European countries. So this is Congressional Act 660 of the Foreign Assistance Act. This is the legal background for what I'm going to talk to you about today. It says here, none of the local currencies generated under this chapter shall be used to provide training or advice or provide any financial support for police prisons or other law enforcement forces for any foreign government. So this act came about in 1974, which was right after Pinochet took power in Chile and people were generally making noise and protesting US being involved in human rights crises around the world. So here's so exception one to this rule If the program is part of the Drug Enforcement Agency or if it relates to acts that are crimes in the US, you can still give training and support to these prison forces because it's an exception. So that's the legal background. If it's part of the War on Drugs, international prison programs are totally permissible. So it's like this rule doesn't really actually exist. It's just like one big loophole. So the first big international US prison program began in the late 90s in Colombia. ASGJ was the first group in the US to find out about it and really write about it. We were doing solidarity work with political prisoners there, and they were being held in this prison called La Tramacua. It's in the hottest part of Colombia, which is Valle du Par. The conditions in this prison are pretty unspeakably bad. The water was being turned off during the hottest part of the day when the temperatures were above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And Colombia is like full of rivers, there is no, there's no need for them to be doing that. So the prisoners had an elaborate system for taking turns to collect enough water for the brief time it was on, which was 10 minutes a day. The food had feces in it. Prisoners inside reported out that 70% of the population in there was sick with things like diarrhea, vomiting, and constant coughs. And on top of that, the political prisoners held there were being tortured. And this was a US built prison. It was funded by USAID, USAID, and the US Bureau of Prisons set it all up and controlled every aspect of the design. And it was modeled after Coleman Prison in Florida, which we heard about earlier because Leonard Kelsey is being held there. So La Traumacua was initially supposed to be this super-secure prison where everything would be very regulated and it would all be according to human rights standards. That was how the Colombian media talked about it. The U.S. Bureau of Prisons had an office inside of it when it was built, and of course it ended up being a huge disaster with respect to human rights. And From reading a State Department report that talked about prisons, my coworker James found out then in 2012 that the U.S between 2000 and 2000, 2012 had subsequently gotten involved in the prison, the prisons of at least like two dozen other countries. So they, the State Department had seemingly decided that this was a, a workable model and they were going to take it elsewhere. So I was an AFGJ intern in 2012 and we were just starting to find out about all this. 2012 was around the time that mass incarceration was just starting to be exposed to mainstream liberal audiences as this really violent, racist institution. Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, had just come out, which is an amazing book. And so I, as an intern, was just really struck with the fact that the US was taking this model and exporting it elsewhere. As you may know, we have a fifth fifth of the world's prison population and it has a system that with very violent and racist underpinnings. When people are uprooted by lack of resources here, our tendency is to lock them up rather than dealing with the underlying issues. As Michelle Alexander has said, we warehouse people. What is the U.S. doing spreading this system in other countries and how are we doing that? Right now, we know that prison imperialism programs are channeled through the State Department subdivisions of the Bureau for for Narcotics Law Enforcement and the Bureau for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, as well as the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. We still don't know exactly how much has been spent and where it's been spent. My organization is trying to get the Congressional Research Service to look into it. What we do know, we know from WikiLeaks and from reading State Department sources, knowing that they sort of like won't tell a complete story, and from Latin American sources. This international prison program is kept under wraps by the State Department. So, what does prison imperialism consist of? In almost every country that we're involved in, the US does trainings for staff and advises them in methods to manage. And keep track of inmates. Some of this is done by Colorado Corrections Industries, which is a private company. In some countries, the US has been more heavily involved to the point where we're paying for the construction of new prisons. US funded prison construction has happened in Colombia, Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And those are the countries with which we have security agreements to fight drugs. And we've also physically built prisons in Palestine and Iraq. On the other hand, out of these 34 countries, there are some where the State Department is involved to a much lighter degree. Like in South Korea, for example, the Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor partnered with a local NGO to do an assessment. So that's like the, on the other much lighter extreme, and there's varying degrees of involvement from between that, from very heavy to very light. So in all of these Latin American countries I just mentioned, We have security agreements that are supposedly about combating drug trafficking. The names of these are Plan Colombia in Colombia, the Merida Initiative in Mexico, and Central America Regional Security Initiative in Central America. So I'm going to be focusing on these countries in part because AFGJ just works with them much more closely and we have more connections, and also because the U.S. has been there for a really long time so we can start to see how these programs have developed and what they're all about. Besides getting involved in the prisons, we've also been involved in their justice sectors, sort of encouraging them to prosecute what we want prosecuted, in their police and their border security. And in total, these security packages cost hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars. So, the State Department rationale for why we need to be involved in their prison programs is primarily drugs but also because these prisons are corrupt and dysfunctional and they don't effectively prevent crime. So they've also said that there's a humanitarian side, like reducing overcrowding. So I'm just going to kind of take that on its own terms and consider whether the U.S. has been helping with with those things. And one thing I should quickly get out of the way is there has never, ever been any impact on reducing drugs. The National Academy of Sciences says that they are just as available as they have always been in the past thirty five years. It's common it's common knowledge. So it's not the rationale and we're not even really going to go into it beyond that. So first, in terms of dysfunctionality, there is still plenty of that. In Honduras, where the US has been doing prison construction for at least eight years, over sixty prisoners who are mainly gang members, escaped from prisons just a couple weeks ago and seemingly encountered no resistance. Last week, a gang member who had like previously murdered 17 people just walked out of one of these new maximum security prisons that we think the U.S. was deeply involved in and probably built and was arrested walking around San Pedro Sula with an AK-47. So in Colombia, La Tramacua still hasn't closed but instead of political prisoners there now it's just regular prisoners the conditions are still bad so whether or not they're actually functioning better the culture of many prisons has changed really dramatically in the early 2000s us officials said they were going to create a new penitentiary culture in colombia and that's the phrase that they kept on using after that so now all of these countries are starting to give really punitive long sentences that can be like you know 40 or 100 years and there's actually no evidence that punitive long sentences work as a crime deterrent, but it's largely because of U.S. influence that that's occurring. People in these countries are starting to be detained really far away from home, and that's also something very typical of our prison system here. And that's because people are being put now in these federal prisons that we think the U.S. has really been involved in, rather than the local state prisons. And Mexico didn't actually even have a federal prison system until very recently, just state prisons. And solitary confinement or being put in a cell for most of the day is starting to be much more common too. And one previously incarcerated activist we spoke to in Mexico, he's with a group called Comité Cerezo, and they're really cool, you should check them out, described the changes in their prison culture as muy norte americano. He was saying that in the past, going to prison in Mexico is much more about reintegrating into society and less about being punished. And so now it's becoming more like it is in the U.S. Here there are things like three strikes rules, long sentences, and that's kind of all quite normal here, uh, but globally it's very unusual. In Mexico, they changed the part of their constitution that talks about prisons the word reinsertion was replaced with rehabilitation. And those two words sound superficially pretty similar, but if you think about the sort of focus of them, reinsertion is about going back into society, and rehabilitation is more of a focus on what happens behind bars. So that sort of like small verbal change is being reflected and amplified in reality. We should really be critical, basically, of whether all these shifts in the culture of prisons are actually beneficial and a good trade-off for these countries, even if they're making Latin American prisons function better, which I still haven't heard anyone claiming, even from the U.S. government.
0: Tightline reached out to Nassim sometime after the conference and asked her to expand on her work with the Alliance for Global Justice, her conceptions of imperialism, and about the network of interests that promote the growth of prison imperialism. Here she is.
2: The organization that I work for is headquartered in Tucson. It's Alliance for Global Justice. We do Latin America solidarity work with an anti-imperialist perspective. Practically, that means participating in partnerships and alliances with groups on the left in Latin America and amplifying their message here in the States and shedding light on the really difficult conditions that people's movements in Latin America face and pushing forward their aims from here in the U.S. Traditionally, the concept of imperialism has meant rule by an empire. And you can think of sort of specific empires in history like the British Empire or Spain. But imperialism has evolved for the times. And what it means now is extending a country's influence through Diplomacy and military force, which is not to say that the U.S. isn't an empire in the more traditional sense. You can think of places like Puerto Rico or Guam or other territories of the United States. So we still are a traditional empire. But what imperialism has become is a more diffuse extension of U.S. power and control that happens both through the U.S. government and through capitalist control. So in Latin America, the U.S. funds militaries. We get a lot of business involvement and control through things like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which not explicitly, but sort of indirectly, the U.S. has a huge amount of power in. And so basically we are still doing the things that make imperialism imperialism. We're taking, we're taking resources away from the people, often in Latin America, indigenous people, and channeling it upwards to, to powerful rich people in the United States. And we enforce that through militarization, policing, and now prisons as well. Neoliberalism in the developing world has been accompanied by these often clandestine U.S. military campaigns that push countries to open up more of their economy to big, big business, but it's long been accompanied by U.S. military campaigns, often cl- somewhat clandestine, that push countries to open up more of their economy to big business, including privatizing lots of things that previously weren't privatized. So in Honduras, where I just traveled a few weeks ago, water has become privatized. Prisons are seemingly on the verge of that. So many facets of the economy that previously were not privately held are pushed towards that through the policies of neoliberalism. Unfortunately, but completely intentionally, this stuff is kept very obscure. It's information that is classified to an extent that makes it really difficult to track who is doing what and what office it's coming out of. It's extremely difficult to find out who is actually turning a profit on all of this. Because Honduras, anyway, is on the verge of seemingly privatizing their prison system, there are definitely financial interests at play. Someone I spoke to there, who works for the government, said that U.S., Israeli, Colombian, and Mexican companies all pitched them back before the coup, but just that there wasn't the political will at the time to privatize the prison. So I think we can pretty safely assume that some of these same companies are now buying this country where the prisons are potentially about to be privatized as a business opportunity. One place that definitely does a lot is Colorado Corrections Industries. They are based near Denver. They do a lot of international prison training. Yeah, and their website has like, oh, we've hosted people from, you know, 50 countries or something like that. And actually, when I was in Honduras, people seemed to know about this prison as kind of They're like, oh, this famous prison in the U.S. that you have in Colorado. So that's that's one. um, That is for profit. Within the actual U.S. government, the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement is, from what I can tell, the biggest one. That's part of the U.S. State Department. And, yeah, as you mentioned, under Obama, Hillary Clinton was, the head of the U.S. State Department. So, yeah, there's also definitely some USAID involvement. USAID stands for the United States Agency for International Development. It seems like they tend to be uh, operate slightly separately from the State Department programs. So in June, I went to Honduras. Somebody from the Honduras Solidarity Network, who's based in Honduras, had been contacting my organization and me specifically saying, the situation around U.S. funded prisons is really crazy here. You have to come now because it's in this moment of crisis. So I flew down to Honduras, where, and this is a place where just since 2009, and really actually since 2014, there's been this. Big boom in maximum security prison construction. Before 2009, Honduras had no maximum security prisons. And people that I spoke to said that the prison conditions there actually may now be worse than they were before because a lot of aspects of U.S. prison, the U.S. prison paradigm, are now in Honduras. So things that typically go with U.S. prisons like extreme sun deprivation, being isolated really far away from your family, like halfway across the country, being locked up in tiny cells. These are things that didn't really exist in Honduran prisons before. The visiting policies were much more flexible and lenient. The prisons tended to be like in the middle of the cities. So those problems that are typically associated with U.S. prisons compound those problems that Honduran prisons already have. And and the new U.S. built prisons don't fix these things. So those are things like extreme corruption where the well-connected prisoners can have a much different life on the inside and often get out of prison. A lot of people think that guards let certain prisoners out of prison in Honduras to specifically commit assassinations. The fact that these new U.S.-built prisons still have problems gives people on the right in Honduras, which, I mean, the whole government is on the right, an excuse to talk about, now we have to privatize the prisons because nothing works. Like, not even military control of the prisons works. So the only thing to do is give it to a private company to do it. So, yeah, things are on the verge of quickly changing. When I was there, they were talking about reducing the minimum age to sentence a child as an adult, which they didn't end up doing. But things are really happening now in Honduras around the issue of prisons. So I wrote an article coming out in Out. The title of the article is how the U.S. imposes the worst of its prison paradigm
0: abroad. Special thanks to Desim for speaking with us, and we've also posted a link to the article that she mentions on our website. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at KiteLineRadio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on Line at our website, KiteLineRadio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.